Hi, and welcome to More Than a Refresh, a podcast about data and the people who wrangle it. I'm Amanda Nystrom, the Chief Operating Officer at Command Prompt, a leader in open source excellence since 1997. We hope that you enjoy the podcast today and contact us for your Postgres and full stack needs, including 24-7 support. Find us at 503-667-4564 at commandprompt.com or at sales at commandprompt.com. Enjoy. Welcome to More Than a Refresh, a podcast about data and the people who wrangle it. Our theme today is the relationship between open source and wearables. And our guest, Jeff Gill, is president at Shimmer Americas. Jeff, introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, well, Shimmer Americas, we do wearable sensors, uh, primarily for medical uh, and other B2B applications. And uh, I run the US, uh, but uh, that's my day job. Uh, in my uh, copious free time, I am a co-founder of the Open Wearables Initiative, which we often call OWARE, uh, which is designed to help uh, facilitate and encourage the use of open source algorithms for wearables, uh, in particular for, for medical applications. Well, that's definitely uh, an interesting perspective because you know most medical uh, devices I know are very close source and they hold very close to the chest in terms of what their code is. And we'll get into that in a minute. But what what's your background? Where'd you, how'd you end up at President Shimmer Americas and being uh, co-founder of, and I love the term copious free time because that essentially means like myself, you don't have any. Um, what, uh, how'd you come about to this position? Oh, well, that, that's a very long story but I'll try and, and shorten it to make it somewhat interesting. Um, so I started out, uh, I have a degree in applied math and physics from undergrad. And uh, I started my career in what was, you know, not what we now call data science, uh, basically algorithm development and analyzing data. Uh, back in the day, we called it numerical analysis. Uh, and got involved with that, uh, then went to business school and, and kind of went on the business side, but always kind of combining technology and, um, and uh, business and ended up uh, being involved in a number of startups. I guess I'm now a, a serial entrepreneur and uh, the latest one got me involved with uh, Shimmer Research, uh, which I guess is maybe not a startup, but it, it's a, a small company that does wearable devices and um, was really brought in to, uh, to help get us into some, some bigger markets than we were currently in. And, and the medical field is, is probably the biggest. Oh, certainly. Um, I mean, everybody needs healthcare on some level. Uh, in speaking of that, you know, obviously everybody hears about the pandemic because it's constant and persistent and it's probably our new way of life. But how has, you know, the last 18 months or so, how has that, you know, COVID kind of changed the way you work and how has it impacted uh, Shimmer with the industries that you're targeting? Uh, so in terms of how we actually work, uh, didn't strangely impact us very much. Uh, we have facilities in Dublin, Ireland, I'm in Boston and we have a team in Malaysia. 
And so I spend most of my life uh, on uh, Zoom. I guess the, the big change there was we kind of moved from Skype and GoToMeeting to Zoom. Uh, so not, not a huge, huge shift there. Um, in terms of the industry, it's, it's uh, you know, radically transformed the industry. Uh, there's been a whole shift in, in how uh, uh, clinical trials are run, which is our, our primary focus, uh, to moving much more towards decentralized virtual trials, as it's sometimes called. Uh, and uh, it's kind of both been disruptive and, but also um, brought a lot of attention on ways to assess people's health remotely. Uh, because you can't always just bring them into the office to to see how they're doing. So a lot of short-term disruption, long-term uh, for us, it's actually been, uh, uh, you know, a, uh, a very positive direction, just accelerated something that was going in that direction anyway. Well, I want to put a pin in that for a minute, because I think you said something very interesting with the remote monitoring of health, and I, I want to explore that deeper. But first, um, you know, as I mentioned, when we brought you on, we very much like to hear the human side of things on this podcast. What is something that you're passionate about that has nothing to do with work? Well, I, I guess really just my family, my wife and my kids. Uh, I adore them. They're, they're great. I have three kids, uh, one wife. Uh, and <laughs> one so wife. <laughs> Yeah, that's probably a good choice. Um. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least in the U.S. at this time, you know, but yeah. yes. <laughs> and, and, and probably a good choice, even if I weren't in the U.S. So, uh, yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's great. I, I um, it, strangely enough, the pandemic has been kind of uh, nice on that side. Both my wife and I are doing almost all our work from home now. And so we each have our separate offices, but we get to go down to the kitchen and have, we call it the cafeteria. And uh, we sometimes meet at the cafeteria to have lunch. So, so it's been a lot great to have more time to do that and, and more availability. Yeah, so a little about me here, you know, command prompt, I found a command prompt back in 1997 and we've been fully remote since I think like 04 or something like that. Um, and my wife and I also have always worked from home. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, we work hobby and play together. Uh, and it, at times, uh, some people, you know, we've talked to people and they're like, I don't understand how you could do that. And it does take a special relationship. Is there, is there any challenges that you had? I mean, did she work from home beforehand or is the, the, the pandemic caused her to work from home? You know, how, how did you have to adapt? Yeah, it, it, it's, we, um, uh, we both worked in an office full-time beforehand. And um, we also traveled uh, periodically, you know, maybe once a month or, or something like that. So. So um, this is, it's been, uh, you know, quite a, a relief to be able to kind of just stay at home and, and do all the stuff that we were doing anyway. Um, I think for us, it's, it's a little different that um, we're working in separate companies, so we're not working together. So we really, we both have our offices and they're private and they're separate. And um, that's actually worked out well. So it's, 
it's not quite the full on on relationship that you have that uh, 24 seven. But, uh, you know, so far, it's all positive spending time more time together. I, I think it's great. I wish I that more families could see the benefit uh, in being more tight knit. We in the States, we kind of gone through this culture shift where, um, you know, you're supposed to have two working parents and you send your kids to school and then you're ferrying them to whatever after hours, you know, whether it be soccer or football, whatever. Um, and, and you come home, you have dinner and then, you know, when, when's family time? When is bonding? How do you actually teach your children if you're all spending so much time, uh, you know, away from each other. Now, and that doesn't just suggest it has to be 24 seven. Um, you know, I know for, for example, our producer, Lindsay Hooper had a very interesting uh, family life and that her life was a little more communal um, where she had uh, a, a, multiple adults in her life, even though her parents you know, were together the whole time. Uh, whereas myself, uh, as I was growing up, I came from your traditional destroyed 80s family. So I'm not going to even go there. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. <laughs> um, and it really put a sense of importance as I raised my kids. My kids are all almost grown now. I have one daughter left at 16. Um, and uh, really kind of changed our direction and our purpose in terms of, you know, focusing on family first right? The career is important, but the reality is the moment you have kids and the moment you have a partner, they, they come before your career and your accolades and your resume. And I've seen a lot of people struggle with that through their own personal ambition. Um, okay, let's, let's move on here. Uh, you said, you know, you're president of Shimmer. Shimmer is building what? So, we make wearable sensors so you know you can kind of think the the thing that everyone thinks of when they think about wearables is like the apple watch or fitbit or whatever um and you know we have some that that kind of look that way but but um we our sensors we have a whole platform of different sensors and they can be put in different parts of the body um they can measure things you know other than activity and, and sleep and those types of things. Um, other than even heart rate, uh, we have a sensor that measures something called thoracic bioimpedance, which is basically measuring uh, the level of resistance across your lungs, which uh, is an indication, first of all, you can get really good respiration data from that. But you can also start to even talk about things like measuring the amount of fluid in lungs and, and that type of thing. So there, 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 there's a whole range and um, they, uh, you know, some of them can be integrated into like fabrics and into shirts or, or uh, with, which have electrodes built into the fabric. Uh, others, you know, can be worn on your ankle or your, your upper arm or, or your head. Uh, uh, we just got an inquiry today about someone wants to put, you know, a, an IMU sensor on someone's forehead. So it's like, we can, yeah, we can do that. So it tends to be very, very um, eclectic what we do. And, and what a lot of people I, I don't think completely understand is that for medical applications, there, 
medicine is going to be an incredibly large market, but it's going to be made up of a whole bunch of tiny niches that uh, tiny is relative, you know, maybe billion dollar niches, but, but, but you know, very small, specific things that they're measuring. Um, and so that's where we play. We don't play at all in the consumer market or, you know, that's why no one's ever heard of us. So you're not f- doing Fitbits. You had said, you said, just wait, this caught me, you said inside the body. So it, it, I want to clarify, you have sensors that are internal, you can have externally, of course, but also internally. Uh, no, we do not do any internal. Those those would be called implantables as opposed okay. to wearables. Um, but we do measure by, you know, putting electrodes on either side of the lungs. Um, we can actually send, a, you know, a very, very small electric current through there. Um, and measuring that measures the resistance that it encounters. And that gives you a, a, a measure of what's happening inside. So, I mean, basic science, you know, has told us that, you know, the body does have, I mean, for lack of electricity, energy, whatever, running through it. And what you're saying is that you have the ability through a wearable sensor to measure how much, say, for well, you had mentioned fluid is in the lungs. Right. Right. That's... uh, I'm sitting here a little dumbfounded, right? I get like I, I get the I can measure my heartbeat, I can uh, and those types of things. I understand that, but how does one measure the amount of fluid through the resistance between a very low pulse of electricity between two electrodes? Well, basically, um, uh, we, we can get quite quite complex here. Um, <laughs> you have you have sort of a, a spatial uh, approach which looks at, uh, so fluid is, is more conductive than air. So when, when you breathe in, the amount of air in your lungs increases. And so the resistance increases. Uh, when you exhale, uh, it decreases. And so the res- resistance decreases. And so you can measure that impact. Um, now, if you do things uh, like vary, there's a carrier, as it turns out, there's a, a carrier frequency that you use when you inject the, this. If you vary the carrier frequency, if you have a, a, an array of electrodes, you can start to look at the spatial configuration of the, um, of the, of the resistance, and that's how you would get to the, the fluid in the lungs. Um, it's, it's not, not a sim- simple, trivial calculation, but it's, it's something that can be done. So I, first off, I am not trying to oversimplify the, the, the technology in terms of what it's doing. I, I do very much understand that it's uh, intricate. Um, but what would be, since we are talking specifically about the lungs and impedance in the lungs and, and fluid in the lungs, what is the practical application there for medicine? What, what would that data help me determine? Well, um, so if you think about chronic heart failure is basically fluid in the lungs. So if you're able to measure the amount of fluid in the lungs um, and also respiration, heart rate, there's a number of, of different factors that you could include in here. You can build a model and um, potentially 
identify when that person uh, is starting to go south before even they feel it and well before they are readmitted to a hospital and you treat them with Lasix and you solve the problem um, uh, without them going to the hospital. And, and this, is, this is a huge problem. Now, I'll, I throw some statistics at you. So uh, a little over 6 million people in the US have, have chronic heart failure. Um, the uh, total cost is somewhere in the 40 to $50 billion a year to the, to the, um, to the uh, country. Uh, you know, the mortality rate is, is very high. Uh, I think it's 23% of, of people uh, with chronic heart failure are readmitted to a hospital within 30 days of release. So if you can start to, you know, fix this with like a two or $300 wearable, and intervene ahead of time, you can save billions in cost. You can, and probably more important, you improve the person's life because you know being readmitted to a hospital is not a good thing under any circumstances, and you have the secondary infections and all sorts of things. So, you know, for for really short money, you can actually change the whole sort of outlook here for the person and for the the economics of the situation. Okay, so and I'm again, I'm not trying to oversimplify here, but what I'm hearing is that in this in this particular circumstance, uh, it's kind of like the pacemaker, right? Where the pacemaker, you can have a pacemaker installed that will help keep your heart rhythm doing what it's supposed to do. Um, in this situation, you have the ability to preemptively, or not even preemptively, more like proactively manage the condition because you have these sensors and therefore you're reducing probably not eliminating because it is you know chronic but reducing the visit the readmittance to the hospital quite a bit yes exactly and and go ahead that of course creates a better quality of life also i assume would also decrease the mortality rate because it becomes a semi-manageable condition yeah, I, I mean, I, I would think that it would decrease the mortality rate. I mean, uh, well, almost certainly it would. I mean, you know, chronic heart failure is not a not a good thing. So, no. so hey, you know, it's it's you you want to avoid it, but but it is potential gives you the potential to manage it much better. Interesting. So, you know, as I I've been in the technology industry since like 1991, something like that. Um, and so I've, I kind of came up through, you know, the internet becoming a thing, even though it's been, it had been around for 20, almost, almost 20 years by then. Um, but the internet actually becoming a commerce platform. And now as technology has moved forward at, at such a degree, you know, we're starting to see things like, you know, when I use my phone, I didn't even ask it to do this, but my phone tracks my steps through the day. I'm not, I don't have a wearable. It's just in my pocket and it'll tell me, Hey, you did so many steps. Good for you. Um, and it's like, thank you. You demoralizing piece of plastic. <laughs> um, but it's I mean, well, it's terrible, right? Because you'll pick up the phone at the end of the day and it's like, here's a hundred, you did 150% of your steps. And then you're like, Ooh, but then there's the days where it's like, you did 12% of your steps. I'm like, that's because I wasn't carrying you. 
you know, yeah. uh, it's, it's very judgmental. I, I, I don't, I don't know what to do about it, but the, um, I do see a benefit as a whole to providing using technology, not only to uh, increase life, for example, I need a new ankle. I didn't even know you could replace ankles and you can replace ankles now. Um, But there is a concern because privacy is is a huge issue now, right? You have, it's always been an issue, but it is now at such a level because the internet has turned the person into the product, right? You no longer sell a widget, you sell a person's habits so that you can get them to consume more. And that's a very dangerous thing. How do we, with these types of devices, without, obviously I'm not looking to give away secrets here, but there's gotta be some kind of protocol. Obviously there's regulations like HIPAA and stuff like that. Um, that ensure some privacy, but we were on the phone with a breast cancer oncologist uh, researcher uh, back in the beginning of the year. And one of the things that she struggles with is getting the, the data that she needs. She has to like download it from a spreadsheet and then cross correlate. And it's, there's no centralized databases and there's no way for her to say, show me cancer rates in this zip code to see if there's a hot spot. And, and then you might be able to correlate that to say uh, a former toxic chemicals plant that was buried or whatever, right? The, with this, isn't there a similar concern? I mean, how do you make sure that Joe Johnson doesn't all of a sudden have the world know that he has a chronic heart condition because of this sensor? Well, so, I mean, it's, it's a, a great question. I, I mean, I think it's really important to, to draw a, a very clear distinction between the things that are being used in medical applications, which are all covered by HIPAA, uh, and uh, the data that's generated by consumer wearables. And the consumer wearables, quite frankly, you know, is kind of the wild west. And I think regulations and everything are, are starting to catch up for that. And I, I think uh, the, um, whereas, actually, I would argue, as in the case of your, your researcher, that we may be overboard on, on the HIPAA side, because there's incredible value of sharing data, and being able to, to look at large quantities of data. If, if you look at, at clinical trials now, I mean, one of the challenges that they face is each one has to do their own data. They have to do what's called a placebo arm, which is basically an untreated set of people and uh, 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 another arm, the the treatment arm where they're actually giving people the test drugs. Now, do they really need to do a placebo arm? Can't they, couldn't they just compare the, the, uh, their treatment with, you know, a, a generic placebo arm, effectively, you know, a group of people. So if you have 20 drug companies doing 20 different drugs that are treating the same condition, they could potentially all use the same. But instead, 
they basically each have to do their own uh, placebo arm, which is, you know, very, very expensive. It's, you know, it's not great for the people who are in the placebo arm because they're not getting a treatment. Um, and so, so there's a whole, you know, series of, of issues around that. And um, so I think that for, for, you know, and we're very much in the medical side. Uh, so the, 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 um, the data that we would do uh, will probably end up eventually in the patient's medical record, uh, but it doesn't kind of stop in between. I mean, it gets transferred and moved in, in, into there. Um, if someone breaks into the medical record, they, they will know that the person has chronic heart failure. They'll know an awful lot more about them than, than the wearable. I mean, they'll, they'll have the complete medical record. So, so that's very, the medical records are very tightly constrained. And um, whereas, you know, you have uh, the consumer wearables are, are just generating this data and, and um, you know, there's not, not very much constraint on that. Um, so it's, you know, big, big distinction between those two. Yeah, and I would agree. I mean, obviously, anything in the health industry is heavily regulated. And I, I would also agree with you that HIPAA is working against uh, advancement of care in certain circumstances. Um, you know, it, it, it's interesting. The A few years back, I had a stint where uh, I weighed too much. <laughs> and, um, you know, when you get in your 40s, if you don't stay active, you end up in that condition. And I went to the doctor, I was just doing a standard checkup. And I saw on my uh, sheet, uh, you know, medical record sheet, where she wrote obese. And I thought to myself, I'm only 25 pounds overweight, I'm not obese. Now, technically, I was obese. Um, but it's kind of that particular situation. It, I think that people are holding on to and, and I as well, uh, to their privacy a little too much here. Because when you think about the greater good, what, I mean, what do you care that on a piece of paper, it says you're obese, you can look in the mirror, you know, you're fat, you know, you need to drink, drink a little less beer and eat a lot less pizza, right? It's, this isn't a secret. Everyone around you knows you're fat. So why does it matter that it's in your record and of course there's more sensitive things than obesity but I was, I was using that as an example because it's something that happened with me but how can you advance healthcare? and these sensors are part of the solution right but if you can't share data right you, you your placebo uh, argument is a perfect example you essentially have created let's call it 12 groups of people that are trying to treat high cholesterol, for example. Um, and that means you have 12 groups of people who are likely candidates for a heart attack and dying who are not getting treated because we have to have 12, these companies can't share data. Now, there is the argument that uh, you know, these companies, they obviously, they want to have their own patents. They want to have their own uh, drug be the best drug. But if you only, it, it, I, I don't know. So, I mean, I, so, I, so 
there, there are a couple different questions there and a couple different issues. So one is, is I'm a firm believer that you shouldn't be sharing people's personal data connected with their personal information. Um, so um, all the data we have, and, and, and for example, in our products, uh, we never know who the person is who's actually wearing the wearable. Uh, we, we, they have a participant ID, which is some code that's, that's given to them. And there's nowhere in our system where, they actually, where we actually have their name, address, anything that could identify them. Um, and that's fine because somewhere else in some other system, there is in fact a, an identifier and there is, a, there is a table that links them with that, but you can't get at that from our system. And, and you know, for, for our purposes, we don't wanna know that. And uh, so we're actually pretty strong about you know, making sure we never know that kind of personal information. Um, and there's, uh, you know, they, they call it uh, pseudonymizing the information. So, so there is somewhere a way to, to link this to other information, um, but you, you can't link it directly within that system. And, and I think that's the way we have to go. There's, there's really, um, you know, the, the participant you know, in the, in the placebo arm I talked about, you know, those are, are you know, pseudonymized participants. So, so it is eventually possible and it has to be possible uh, to go through a series of systems to identify the person because you actually have to update because you'll have follow-up maybe over five years on some of these things. And, and so, so you do need to kind of know that uh, or you have to be able to get there. But there's layer upon layer of, of protection of that, and so it's incredibly difficult, uh, you know, for a, for a hacker even, uh, you know, let's let's forget about the companies can't do it, you know, uh, they can't use that information um, or, or gain access to it. But even a hacker, you know, has to go through several several breakdowns to connect the information. Uh, that that uh, is being generated by the wearable, and the um, and the actual person, and uh, so so that's really pretty secure, and I think we can manage that. I think you know again the, the consumer stuff is is not in that category, and that's something that I think is um, uh, you know potentially much more vulnerable. Well, I would agree. I mean, with the with the wearable, the, the stuff you can pick up at Best Buy, let's put it that way. Um, you know, a lot of people have gotten into this idea, um, you know, and it, you know, measures heart rate, uh, basic assumption of calories burned, you know, all those types of things. And it, that's certainly good information to have for yourself. But what they don't realize is that information is being collected. And, um, there are there's an astounding amount of assumptions that you can make from even the smallest data set that allows you to target a consumer. Yeah, and I I think most people don't realize this. I mean, even some of the brilliant people that I know, and you know, having a, an Alexa in your house, right? It, it, there's a, a 
a reciprocal relationship with an Alexa, right? They, yep. they, and it's uh, and I and again, I think it's cool that, that this technology exists, but I don't think people actually understand what the cost of that convenience is. And right. with these with the wearables that are not medical, right? They're basically hobby medical. Uh, you know, hobby wearables that give you some level of medical information. Um, there's a reason that's happening. And I, I wish that people would pay a little bit more attention to what is actually going on. There's this reason why when you're talking about something, all of a sudden the next webpage you go to starts showing ads for it. Yeah. Right. It, it, it's, it, it's not magic. It's actually math. <laughs> yeah, yeah no absolutely i mean and in, in in my mind you know because we actually do do some work in in what's called the neuromarketing sphere so i'm i'm a little familiar with that um as well but but um in my mind there's a very broad distinction between um understanding people and sort of then using it <laughs> using it against them or, or taking advantage of that understanding. Um, there's a whole field of effective computing and, and where they're trying to make computers more empathetic. And you can talk, you know, Alexa, you know, helps with, with, with this and, and helps, you know, makes your life much more convenient, but it's taking that information and then using it in a way that, that maybe the, the, person who's involved doesn't understand and uh, is, is um, you know, wouldn't necessarily feel totally comfortable with. Um, I think that's, that's where you can get into real uh, issues. Yeah, let's, let's shift gears here because part of this, this, uh, the wearables and, and the medical devices, you're also a founder of Oware, which is the open source wearables project or open source wearables initiative. Talk to me, who else is involved with that initiative? So, so we have a, a number of, of people, uh, uh, there's, you know, from the pharma side, uh, there's like Pfizer, uh, Merck, uh, J&J's gotten involved a bit. Um, a, a whole series of pharma companies, Eli Lilly, uh, Novartis, so, so, you know, all, all the big names there are involved. Um, then there are some uh, what are called CROs or clinical research organizations. And these are companies that actually run trials. They're involved in. And then we have a group of uh, or work closely with a number of, of different uh, industry organizations. Um, there's the Clinical Trials uh, Transformation Initiative, uh, the Digital Medicine Society and so forth. So. So a pretty broad range in, in the industry of, of people or, or organizations that are involved in this. And talk to me about why you went, it's open wearables. It is the, when you say this, is it, are the designs open or is it the code that works within the, the wearables open or yes? Uh, no, it's, it's, it's very much the, uh, the code. It's, it's specifically, the algorithms. And um, so if we kind of step back and, and say, all right, um, how do you get a, um, a, 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 an algorithm or, or how, how, how do you know that you're measuring something that's useful in medicine? 
And there's a there's a validation process that has to go into that. And, and you, know, you basically need to validate that you're measuring something accurately. And then you need to you know, convert that to something physical. And then you have to show that it's, it's relevant to the, the particular disease you're measuring. So there's, it's kind of like a three-step process. Um, it turns out that's a lot of work uh, to do that for even one disease. Um, and the problem is if you, if you think of there, there are literally hundreds of wearables out there and they all have their proprietary algorithms and they, um, uh, if you think about going through this process, which might cost millions of dollars um, to do this validation on each wearable, in each proprietary uh, algorithm for each disease, uh, and then even different cohorts within a disease, um, it's, it's the sort of the combinatorial math just explodes and, and it's completely impossible. Um, but, but so, so what actually what, before Shimmer got involved in, in the uh, clinical trials and, and, and this particular aspect of the industry, we looked at this and we said, this is just not going to work. <laughs> uh, proprietary algorithms, you know, won't work because of the combinatorial math, but also because the, the real customers of this, the pharma companies, the FDA um, need, and actually doctors themselves, they need to understand what you're measuring. They need transparency. So all of this said to us that um, this is just not going to be a viable thing for every company to develop their own algorithms um, to measure basic things like, is someone getting better or worse in a particular disease? I was gonna say, so this is interesting because what I'm hearing uh, because I'm, you know, I'm in the open source world. I've been, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm using Linux right now as we speak. Uh, I've used, I ran Linux as my primary desktop for shoot since like 1995, 96. Um, and uh, I'm also uh, well in depth in our, my company command prompt is, is deep into Postgres uh, and basically, you know, full stack support consulting and one of the things about open source is you get peer review the if your each company is developing their own algorithms and there is no peer review you can't honestly trust that their algorithms are worth a damn right and Absolutely. but it right and in but in what you're talking about is companies build your products love your products great awesome make as much money as you want but the data that you are the algorithms to you know build the core components of for example testing for this disease is something getting better or worse that can now be peer-reviewed amongst the best and the brightest and we can ensure a more proper outcome yeah exactly a good way to put it yeah, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, we actually, uh, so, so Shimmer makes the, the actual wearables uh, and all the software that interconnects and, and there's a tremendous amount of differentiation that you, you derive there and you know, fit for purpose and so forth. So, so but, but the algorithms themselves, we use um, for our, you know, one of our algorithms, there's a, a a package called GGIR, 
Um, and this is just a standard way of measuring activity and sleep using a wrist-worn accelerometer. Now, this has been, in, in the last five years, there are over 300 peer-reviewed articles that use this. Uh, it's been validated on hundreds, literally hundreds of thousands of participants in controlled studies, all peer-reviewed. It's transparent. Um, and so that system is more validated than any other system in the world, any other wearable algorithm, as far as I know, and it's all clear and available to people. No company can do that. Certainly not Little Shimmer can't do 300 studies, each one probably costing a couple million dollars on average. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's so, so, you know, we use that and we, you know, allow our customers to have total control over the version of the algorithm. What people don't realize is, you know, every different version of, of watch is going to have a different algorithm in it. So it's, you know, so if, if you use, you know, Apple Watch 7 or whatever it is, you know, this year and then next year, the new Apple Watch that's available is 8, um, you don't know it's the same algorithm. You don't know if you're getting the same data. Um, that's, that's absolutely right. And if you don't know if you're not getting, if you don't know that you're getting the same data, you can't rely on the calculations that the data are providing. Right, it, exactly. It's, it's, this, this is the, the reason and, and that, that, I mean, the customers of this, the, the, you know, eventually, the, you know, the FDA, the, the European Medical Association, um, and the pharma companies, they don't care about really about the algorithm. They're not going to make any money being able to uh, determine um, whether someone's getting better or worse from, you know, chronic heart failure or whatever. Uh, they, they are making money off the drugs <laughs> and, and the treatments, and we're just monitoring the people. Um, and that's, that's the thing. So, so they want transparency in that so that they can rely on that data because otherwise they have nothing. Well, right, because if they can't rely on the data, they don't even know if the drugs, well, I mean, let, let's talk, I mean, a real simple and, you know, quite funny uh, and, and extremely profitable uh, mistake with a drug was, you know, Viagra, right? Because yeah. it was originally a, it was designed to be a blood pressure medication. Yeah. And the side effect ended up being, you know, clearly very profitable. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, there's no, I don't think there's any argument. I mean, it, it, it fixed... Oh. Yeah, <laughs> hugely um, profitable. Yes, hugely profitable. The kind of profitable that that you know you can imagine a CEO, you know, rolling in the dollars, literally. You know, <laughs> it's just it's ridiculous. Um, but it, it, but you couldn't rely if you don't have a, a proper data set. You can't rely that that was safe. Yeah. Right. They 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 wouldn't have been able to come to market with the switch. Uh, from blood pressure medication to, um, you know, erectile dysfunction medication without being able to reanalyze the data and knowing that the data they had was, you know, canonical and valid. Yeah, yeah um, and, and, and it's even, you know, we talk about, you know, it seems very simple measuring whether someone's getting better or worse, but 
um, you know, back uh, when I was young, actually in college, my brother uh, became a surgeon and, you know, he told me, you know, at that point that, well, there's only one way to measure whether, you know, some uh, you know, treatments work or not. It's five-year survival rate. Like that's the measure. It's like, well, the problem is that that was, may have been the measure back then, but today the, the, the measure is much more difficult. It's, you know, people, because you're dealing with chronic diseases, you're, you know, Parkinson's, uh, Alzheimer's, all these diseases that everyone survives five years. And, and so now you're really looking at how, you know, how well is that Parkinson's patient moving? And that's a much more complex thing and they have good days and bad days. And, and so, so it's really important to have consistent data there. Cause if, you know, if you take steps as a measure and, and, you know, there've been studies done where, you know, the output you get from a steps algorithm based on the, uh, the, um, the same exact data, you know, can vary by 40%. When you're, now, when you say steps, you're talking about monitoring if you got your 10,000 steps. Right. Monitor, right. Yeah. So, so, you know, one, one possible metric for seeing if people are, are being more active in Parkinson's patients is, you know, how many steps are they, they doing? Well, if you change your algorithm, you can just totally uh, change the results of your trial. And so, so um, but, the, but the point is, it's really tough in a, in a clinic. If a person's having a good day and you run through a standard test, they look like the drug's working great, you know, uh, but if you get them on a bad day, it looks like the drug's failing, in fact, making them worse. It's because there's so much variation. So you need the sort of longevity of it and you need to, to be able to, um, to rely on that and having very consistent data. Well, that, and there's also something that really, it seems like the medical field is just now, you know, starting to recognize in certain areas, which is quality of life, right? Certainly, if I take an aspirin and my headache goes away, that was effective. But in something like Parkinson's, like you said, you don't, they may or may not be getting better and you're right. Five years is, is nothing. I mean, look at when Michael J. Fox was, you know, diagnosed and you know how it, that's been 20 something years or something like that. And he's still going, but he had, it, it has gotten worse for him. He's had to retire from acting because he just, the symptoms are too powerful now. Um, but you can also look at things. It, it, there's a quality of life. that should be a, integrated into the care and i would think that these sensors actually could help with that right with parkinson's right let's call it a, a tremor sensor yep. what are the the what is the is there an algorithm that we can put into a sensor that is a wearable that allows us to determine yeah. Something that the, the patient may not, right? So a patient knows I've got these trimmers and they may know that the trimmers are bad, but they may not know that they're getting worse as well as the wearable would, right? Because the wearable could, could sense down to the microns. Right, exactly. I mean, and, and, and it's over time. I mean, so, you know, there's a standard, there are standard uh, questionnaires of, 
patient reported outcomes to, to measure these things. But typically they, they, you know, they're basically asking you on a scale of one to 10, how are you feeling? Or, you know, how bad are your tremors? How bad are this? And first of all, that's really bad, tough for patients to answer. Uh, Cause you're right. It's, it's, it's really hard. And, and they typically answer for the last day or two. And so, so you aren't really getting a, a, a good sense of, of, of that. Um, but um, we actually work with a company that uh, uses our, our wearables and, and um, they've developed an algorithm. There's a treatment for Parkinson's uh, drug called levodopa. And, um, and if you give too much of it, it actually creates its own tremors. <laughs> Um, so, so you have to, to, you know, figure out the dosage of that. Well, this, this company using our wearables can, can distinguish between levodopa induced tremors, uh, and Parkinson's tremors. Um, and so those two, you know, being able to do that, there's no way a patient can, can figure that out, but, but through machine learning algorithms, this company is able to take data and able to, uh, to do that and then allows the, the, the physician to dial the, the, the medicine back, as opposed to kind of being trial and error uh, uh, in terms of, well, how, you, know, uh, you know, do I need to give them more because the tremors haven't gone away or do I need to give them less because the tremors have changed to, to the, the, you know, the levodopa induced tremors. And so, so that's the kind of, of precision you can get with this that you, you can't get with, with, you know, by asking people. So you just touched, and, and we're starting to close up on time here, but you did just touch on something that to me is the most ridiculous question, you know, the scale of one to 10. And this is why it's a ridiculous question. I want to follow up with something because you, you've sparked an idea. Um, I'll, here's an example. I go to the doctor and, you know, I'm 48. So my, my ankle, which needs to be replaced, it always hurts, period right? And for them to ask me on a scale of one to 10, how is your ankle feeling? Well, I can still walk. So it doesn't really matter. Right? The but where this is important is that uh, my wife has H, uh, HEDS, uh, hypermobile uh, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And what that essentially equates to is chronic pain. Now it has a bunch of other issues, but th the issue that we're dealing with is chronic pain. Now she goes to the doctor and she said, and the doctor says, what is your pain level today? Now she says eight. Now here's the problem. One, she's a woman who they traditionally have higher pain tolerances. Two, she's a redhead. Genetically, she has a higher pain tolerance. Three, she has chronic pain, which means an eight to her, you and I are on the couch crying, begging for our mothers. But she is still walking around, cooking dinner and, uh, you know, tending the garden or whatever the case may be. It's, it's, it's a scale of measurement of, a, it, it, it's literally of irrelevance. I don't even know why they use it. It, it should be something more, it, it's something different. Now, my question is this, and the idea is this, is there an algorithm or is there a sensor because your body reacts to pain? 
right? Is there something that can, do you know of something that can be measured in a body automatically, mathematically, so that we can say, yeah, she's, you know, I don't even know how she's walking, right? Because this mathematical algorithm has produced a result that says, you know, if this was a normal, you know, and I shouldn't say normal, but, you know, an average woman just walking down the street, it's zero, but with her, it's a nine. And we need to address that. And then obviously through that measurement, through various medications, the, the level goes down. Do you know of anything that's measurable there? Um, well, definitely. I mean, there, there's, there's, you know, getting an absolute measurement of pain. I don't, <laughs> I'm not sure that that's possible or, or even relevant because, you know, people's brains actually adapt to pain. So it's right. It's uh, so, so, but, but there are things, um, there's a, a, a specific measure called galvanic skin response, um, which basically measures the activation of sweat glands. Um, and that's very sensitive to pain. So, so um, we have a sensor that does this and occasionally I do demonstrations. And if for some reason I'm not being active uh, or, you know, my, my nervousness and, or, or pain, you know, whatever's not active enough, I, I, I will pinch myself to, to get a response. <laughs> okay. So, so we def there are definitely things that you can do there. Um, and now, you know, again, this is, this starts to be relative and, and, you know, it's, it's a physiological response to pain and, and a lot of other phenomenon as well. And so, so you, you have to figure out how to, to take that. And this is where the algorithms come in, right? How to take, you know, this fact that you can actually measure that people are feeling pain uh, but you know what is the the algorithm? Is it the size of the bump? Is it uh, you know how how do you figure that over you know the course of a day and 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 do that? And I will will get there. There's no question in my mind we will get there. Um, but it turns out it takes quite a while. And this you know we'll 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 you know it'll take quite a while to to develop this algorithm. But then there's also the validation. I mean. One of the things that I often talk about with people in, in algorithms is like, if you have a data set and you have an outcome data set, you know, a, a sensor data set and an outcome data set, yeah, it probably takes a couple of months for a data scientist to, to, to build an algorithm or a machine learning expert to build an algorithm that, that maps those two really well. And if, you, if the data sets are broad enough, you, you know, you've got a, a, an algorithm that can actually be, be extrapolated. So it's not the algorithm that's the problem; it's the validation, um, and that's that's where you know that's where the open wearables initiative really tries to come in. Is to say, let's let's you know, not try and compete on these algorithms. Let's just try and have the algorithms uh, there, everyone share them, and what's more important is we share the validation. Well, and that's, again, that's the power of open source in general, right? Is that, yeah. uh, you know, there's hundreds of Linux distributions. Everyone's working together on the core of the platform, the kernel, the Linux kernel, the, the main utilities that are underneath, because there's no intrinsic extra value there. You're not going to productize that. What you productize is the user experience, 
right? Or you modify it to work within a, a specialty piece of hardware, like a, you know, an, say an auto computer or something like that, you know, an IoT device. Um, and that's where the money comes in. And I, I assume for Shimmer, that's the interaction, right? Is that the opening of the data just makes your Shimmer's ability to make a more reliable product because the very nature of the algorithms you're implementing and into these sensors are actually being peer reviewed by your competition. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and that's, yeah, that's, you know, very nice and succinct way to put it. I mean, I think um, there's so many other things that are important that we can compete on. You know, let's just, you know, let's have our basic measures be public and, and open because that's the only way we're going to get there. Yeah, I mean, and I think that a lot of people, historically, people hold on to whatever, into, well, you know, it's, it's intellectual property is where it is. They hold on to intellectual property very deeply because for some reason there's this ownership uh, feeling that if I don't own it, how can I monopolize it or you know, productize it or something like that. It's actually a good example of this is that command prompt, uh, you know, anytime you do business, you have a contract of some sort, right? It, it, even if you just click agree and you never read it, which is what most people do, there's a contract in place when you conduct commerce. And in our contracts, it's very clear that if we develop something for you, um, as long as it's not a trade secret or been deemed confidential, because obviously you want to respect that, we get to reuse that code right now. We don't get to compete with you. Of course, that wouldn't be fair, but it, it allows us to never have to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. And that's the uh, power of open source. Yeah. And, and, and quite frankly, we do a lot of custom development for, for our customers and um, generally um, we end up, if, if it's general purpose, we negotiate our contracts up ahead and say, look, We'll do this for you and this will help you with your problem, but you're not in this business. We are, and this is general purpose. And so, you know, we are, we typically give them a break on the price and, and so forth, but we're going to, uh, you know, we have to be free to incorporate it because by the way, you're benefiting from all the work we've done for other people. That's now part of our, you know, quite large library of, you know, software and, and other algorithms and so forth for wearables. Exactly. Um, and it, it all ends up the idea being greater good, right? Including making money, right? There's something wrong with making money. Um, and I think a lot of people forget that, you know, money is not evil, right? Money yeah. is, it, it, it's just a tangible item that allows us to assign value so that people can eat and have homes and or whatever. Now, as we wrap up here, you mentioned way back in the beginning of the podcast, that you used a term which frankly gave me the shivers um, and it was neuromarketing. And I, I, I'd like you to explain what neuromarketing is. Well, basically uh, neuromarketing is, is using uh, psycho psychological techniques, neuroscience techniques to understand consumers better. Um, and I can, totally understand why it gives you shivers um, because uh, it is 
possible to to go down this path and you know use neuroscience techniques to understand individual consumers and then change how you interact with them. I think that's that's a a path we we don't go down. Um, and in fact, the the market research industry doesn't go down that generally. So we will you know do studies with people. Uh, I mean, we actually don't do the studies. Uh, we provide equipment that allows other people, you know, equipment and software to allow other people to do their own studies. But but our studies are, are like a focus group or something like that. And we'll be gauging their psychological reactions to you know a TV ad or something. And not with the intent of selling them more, more stuff, but with the intent of understanding whether that ad's engaging to people. And, you know, because that's, you know, hopefully that ad will become more effective. And, and so, but isn't, go ahead. I, I got to ask, I, I mean, and, and I'm, it, it, to me, so oh, isn't that itself a manipulation though? I mean, obviously it, it's good to make an ad that attracts a person to do whatever, whether it's to go outside or to buy a widget, okay? But in that, it's also possible, and you can see it happen, to derive information to elicit a response that it gets underneath into some underground, not underground, but like under layers of bias or whatever. And you end up manipulating the person in a certain direction, right? Neuro, the perfect example, neuromarketing, regardless of sensors or whatever, is political ads. Yep. Political ads are all lies. They're all lies. And they're very, very well-written lies to elicit and create a response from whatever position you're on. It doesn't matter if you're liberal, Democrat, whatever. All that's irrelevant because every single one of them is lying to you to get you to vote for them. And you can see it through history. The honest politicians do not get elected. So isn't that, I mean, isn't there an ethical boundary there that can be a little, not even a little, that's very concerning? Um, I think the, uh, I mean, you could say this about any research you do, right? That, that you're, you're trying to figure out what, what resonates with focus groups or with, with people doing surveys, which are done ad nauseum and, and so forth. And so I, I think, you know, I think, you know, as with all things, as we talked about Alexa, that there, there is, you know, there are some 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 boundaries that that you don't want to cross. Now, what I would say is is if we're not, from my perspective, there's nothing different from running a focus group where you talk to people and using these techniques on on the same focus group to understand them a little bit better and to you know, you know, understand you know a different aspect of what they do. Um, I don't see that as qualitatively being different. Um, I think as soon as you switch over to, um, uh, you know, going after those individuals themselves, then uh, I, I do feel there's a that's that's where that's kind of the the bright line that that I in my own mind draw. 
Um, but but I think, you know, it's worth. I mean, I know the the industry is is looking at this um, as well. I, I think that it's something that that people can, uh, you know, should be concerned with and should look at. Um, I think the um, you know there's there's a lot of work in the, on the behavioral side, which is is another aspect which we don't get involved in. I mean, that's where Facebook and and these uh, other companies are using using huge amounts of data about yourself personally, you know the choices you make and creating assumptions about that. That to me is far more scary than uh, trying to sort of extrapolate from a group saying, "Look, this is this is what we think the the uh, the you know what will be more in entertaining and and uh, engaging with people." I now I would agree with that, and that and let me be very i would really agree with that the um and that's actually what i was concerned with it's not the focus group idea i mean i think it's perfectly reasonable to do research to make sure that you have a product that you know people will want uh and i think it's also perfectly reasonable to have groups of people to to monitor uh you know you know, did, did their heart rate go up when they saw this scene or something? Is it too much? Was it too violent? Whatever. I think that's fine. Um, my concern was leaning more toward the idea of, and I said it earlier, you know, where the person becomes the product. And yeah. in society today, you know, one of the things I say to everybody, it, uh, you know, cause we, I mean, I, I participate in Facebook or in, on Facebook and in social media, just like anybody else. Um, but the reality is this, if you didn't pay for the news you are reading, you are the product and it is likely lying. Um, because their job, when it's free, their job is to elicit clicks for advertising so they can get paid, which means you get headlines that, you know, they elicit responses. It's, it's like the... Uh, you know, when you're going down the highway and there's an accident, you can't help but look, right? That's why even though the accident's not even on your side of the highway, everybody slows down because everybody has this morbid fascination with the fact that someone might be dead on the side of the road. Um, and it's, that's what they're doing, it, the Facebooks and things like that. And it's not, you really got to wonder what the end result will be. And as you know, I mean, Wall Street Journal is calling it the Facebook papers. Um, the, you know, the fact that Facebook knew that Instagram was negatively impacting teens and especially teen girls, they knew this and they not capitalized on it. That is the scary part of that type of research. Um, but any, but I digress because I'm sure you and I could go on yeah. a long time about the evils that can be when you're talking about things like social media I, and advertising. I, I mean, it's it's this is something that we need to grapple with. Um, you know, I have my own personal bright lines and and uh, uh, about this and. But I think that um, we, as a society, need to, to grapple with it because it's it's really is clearly damaging 
to our society, or at least in my opinion. So we need to need to figure it out. Um, well, no, let's be clear. It may be your opinion, but you are correct. <laughs> it is as a father, two daughters, I watched, I can literally visibly see the behavioral changes in my daughters when they are allowed access to social media versus when they are not. I can in, empirical data analysis. I mean, it's, it's just, you can just observe it and it's toxic. And um, I actually moderate a couple of uh, a, a Facebook group and a, and a couple of subreddits and rule number one is be nice. You don't have to agree. I don't care if you agree, but you're going to be nice and you're going to be constructive. If you're not, I'm going to ban you because the world is already evil enough. I don't need you to be evil to the other people in the community. Completely agree. I mean, I think it's, you know, we, we need to have more of that kind of, of understanding that, that when you talk to people online, you're talking to people. You're, you're not, it's not going on to some electronic ether that, you know, you aren't hurting anyone. That's right. Um, all right. So let's go ahead and wrap this up. Is, is there, I mean, it's been great talking with you and, you know, I really actually, uh, as you're a father, uh, as, as am I, uh, and clearly you love your wife, which you'd be amazed how many men don't. Um, actually, you probably wouldn't be amazed. You probably, it, it's, astounding. <laughs> it's astounding to me the number of relationships that I've seen. And I'm not talking about new relationships that are trying to figure themselves out. I'm talking about relationships that have been going on for 20 years where they clearly just don't love each other. Yeah. Right. They're just, it's, it's almost like they've just gotten into this uh, placid lifestyle where, you know, well, she's my wife or, well, he's my yeah. husband or whatever. Um, but, and I would love at some point, I know you're busy and I'm busy. Maybe we can chew the fat as husbands and fathers, just different perspectives. <laughs> right. But is there anything, you know, that you'd like to, to say before we close this up? You know, I, I think the, the, the potential is out there. I think um, we need to, to uh, the, the privacy issues and all those things, we need to address those and those gotta be upfront, but we also need to have a balance because the, the potential is there's tremendous societal good and, and uh, that's possible uh, and individual good. So, so I think we just need to, to be dispassionate and, and look at these issues and, and try and, and, and find, find a, a good ground for them. Fair enough. All right. This has been More Than a Refresh, a podcast about data and the people who wrangle it. Jeff, thank you very much for joining us, and I look forward to speaking to you in the future. This podcast is hosted by JD, Command Prompt Founder and Postgres Conference Chair, and is produced by me, Lindsay Hooper, Director of Events at Command Prompt Inc. Command Prompt provides Postgres support, professional services, custom development, and community leadership. Since 1997, we've focused on providing just excellent service, custom tailored to your organization's needs. We'll see you soon, wherever you get your podcasts.